Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us how God, the creator of the universe, was grieved at his heart by his own creation. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Now here's some highlights from yesterday's message. Grief of heart comes when we experience a personal loss. The breath of life and man became a living soul. That surprises us. There's not a hope that anyone can stand against this foe. And that's the grave and that's death. Now here's Tom Cantor as we conclude our Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday expository study in Genesis. We thought the Creator King was so far removed. We thought he was isolated from man. But then we read in Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, that he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes were healed, all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's not what we expected from the Creator King. What kind of a Creator King is this? What kind of a creator king would speak into existence the earth and then stoop to form man out of the dust and breathe into him the breath of life? What kind of creator king is it who would create the stars and then build for us a home with gold for streets? And then he would turn and dry the eyes of the brokenhearted. What kind of creator king is that? What kind of creator king is it that would fill the oceans with life and then save us from the power of the grave? That's the creator king who took off his crown and agreed to die. And as he's on a cross, he looks at each one of us in our eyes and he said, this is for you. That's the creator king. That's why He's grieved in his heart at the sin of man. Why? Because the sin of man, for the sin of man that grieved him in his heart, his body would be broken. For the sin of man that grieved him in his heart, his blood would be shed. And for the sin of man that grieved him in his heart, his heart would be broken. That's how we understand this amazing verse. And that's the little porthole that Genesis 6, 6 is giving to us to understand who is he? Who is this great creator God? This is the creator God that was grieved in his heart, that went through the heart grief for the sin of man. And we saw in Hosea thirteen fourteen where he said, I will ransom them from the grave. And this is the creator king who came in, in Matthew twenty twenty eight. He said, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. I will give my life a ransom for many. In Hosea 13, 14, I will ransom them from the grave. That's the Creator King. That's who we're talking about when it says here in Genesis 6, 6, in this marvelous insight, it grieved him at his heart. He had heart grief. Now, We continue on, we look at Noah. Now, we've studied several aspects of Noah so far. We've seen how he fulfilled the criteria of faith. He's used 
as a man who fulfills the criteria of faith. In Hebrews eleven six, it's where it says, But without faith it's impossible to please God, for he that cometh to God must, number one, believe that he is, and that he is, number two, a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And Noah fulfilled that. Of course, he believed that God was, but if believing wasn't enough, he sought the grace of God. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so that's why it says in the very next verse in Hebrews 11, 11, 7, says, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not yet seen, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of righteousness, which is by faith. So it says there that Noah prepared an ark to the saving of his house. We see here this little picture of Noah, that Noah was a priest to his house. He was a priest to his house. When Noah looked at his family, he said, that's my little temple. That family of mine is my little temple. And he looked at his home and he said, that's my temple and I'm the priest. And I'm going to be a responsible priest. And he was foremost praying for his family. That's an example to us. Noah's an example to us here. Men, our families are our temples, or if you like, churches. And we are the priests over those family temples or churches. And our first priority is to pray for our family, like a priest prays for the people that he's responsible for. That's his key job. The priest is the one who prays. He cares about his congregation. And he's always inquiring and looking and asking how they're doing. The great picture of this, Job. It says in Job 1.5, as it describes Job, and remember, God was bragging about Job, because God was bragging about Job, brought a lot of trouble to Job. Maybe Job didn't like that idea. But anyways, it says in Job 1.5, And it was so, when the days of their fasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them. He's talking about his sons. And rose up early in the morning, and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be, that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Then it says this marvelous phrase, thus did Job continually. That was his life. That was Job the priest. Thus did Job continually. What did he do continually? He prayed for his sons. And he offered burnt offerings, but he prayed for them. And he said, I'm so worried about them because it may be that they have sinned and they've cursed God in their hearts. Little did Job know that his own wife would invite him to curse God. But he was praying for them. That's what he gave himself to do. He was worrying, he was praying. Because the heart of his sons was hidden from Job. He couldn't see their hearts. He didn't know what was going on, but he knew God did. Because as we saw in Ezekiel, God knows every thought. Every one of them that comes into our minds. And so he was praying for their hearts. It's a good example for us, Job is. We see that in the case of Abraham. He is a priest over his house. And God said in Genesis eighteen nineteen, speaking about his friend Abraham, he said, I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him. And boy, didn't we see Abraham do that with the case of Eliezer, who went to go get the wife for Isaac, when Eliezer's all alone, not with Abraham there. And we see Eliezer pray, oh God, bless my way, and God opened up the door, and we saw him give testimony to the Lord God of Israel before Laban and the others. 
So why did Eliezer do that? Because Abraham had influenced him. Because Abraham was over him and he commanded him and his household, treated them, anybody under his house, he was a priest to them. We saw that in the case of Joseph. Joseph, when that servant came and the sons were all nervous, that Egyptian servant of Joseph came and said to Joseph's brothers, don't worry, God gave you your treasure back. How come an Egyptian is talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because of the faithfulness of Joseph? He was a priest over those he had responsibility to. And so therefore God said about Abraham, they shall keep the way of the Lord, his family, to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. So because Noah was the priest to his house, when he built the ark, it turns out he wanted a lot of people to come, but it turns out that that was an ark to the saving of his house, as it says in Hebrews 11.7. It was an ark to the saving of his house. Parents, we need to lead our kids to the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't rely on somebody else to do that. We don't rely on the Sunday school teacher, the vacation Bible school teacher, the child evangelism fellowship teacher. That's our responsibility as the head of the home. It's important. We prepare an ark to the saving of our house, like Noah did. The gospel ark to the saving of our house. So he was a priest to his home, Noah was. Then we see in 2 Peter 2.5, where we've seen this verse before, but it says, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Not only was Noah a priest, but Noah was a preacher of righteousness, which means that Noah spoke. He spoke for God. He heard the message that God had given to him, and he was faithful to give it out. He told those people, you have 120 years. God, he's grief in his heart. He's going to destroy you from off the face of the earth. Not just you, but all flesh. He said, all flesh has come before me. That was his message. It was his message, very similar to Jonah's message. He told them the judgment of God was just around the corner. You said, listen, with all your eating and drinking and marrying and giving and marriage, I want to tell you what's happening to you. You're walking right down the middle of the road to hell. That was his message. And he cried out that they were going to be judged in the flood. It was very much like Habakkuk, Noah was. When God gave Habakkuk the message to bring, he said in Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Habakkuk said, I will stand upon my watch. That was Habakkuk's words. And set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me. By the way, that's a great verse for our morning devotion times. What do we do in our morning devotion times? We set out a watch, we stand on our tower, and we look to see what God will say to us. And then he says, and what I shall answer when I am reproved. And the Lord answered me and said, write the vision, make it plain, that he may run that readeth it. That's the phrase, that he may run that readeth it. That was Habakkuk. He said, look, what you say, what you tell, make sure it's plain. It's very, very plain. That's what Paul said. Seeing then that we have such hope, 
we use great plainness of speech. We don't cloud it up with a lot of eloquence. We don't cloud it up with a lot of this. It's got to be crystal clear. You drive it. Drive it. In other words, Paul was saying, I drive the message. I make sure that anybody who comes in contact with me will never be able to say, I didn't know. I didn't know there was a heaven I should try to gain and a hell I should try to avoid. No, Paul says, great plainness of speech. And then that's what he told to Habakkuk. He says, let him that readeth it run. In other words, that people know what to do. They know that they need to repent. They know they need to turn and find the grace of God that's available that Noah found. So Noah was a faithful priest. Noah was a faithful priest over his family. Noah was a faithful prophet to all who he came in contact with. And Noah was also a faithful king because he led, as a king does, his family into the ark. Those were just little things. Just little things that Noah did. A little family, eight people. You know, whoever came into the sphere, he was faithful. He led his little family. He was faithful as a little prophet and a little priest and a little king. Very faithful in the little. And what did God do? God said, you've been faithful in the little. You're going to do the same thing on a greater scale. And now, Noah, you're going to be the priest that prays and the water subside from off the whole earth. Now, Noah, you're going to be the prophet whose words are going to, through your sons, go to all the world, the knowledge of God. Now, Noah, you'll be the king at the helm of your ship. Not only on the helm of your ship, you'll be at the helm of humanity, a new humanity, as you bring in the new humanity. Because God says, you were faithful in the little, and so now you have the much. That's a great, great example for us. And God says, furthermore, I'm going to enter into you, Noah, the first of what I'm calling the covenant a covenant which we'll cover in our next study. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these examples in your scripture. Thank you for the men of God that you, Lord, you helped. And we want to be men, women that you help also. So Lord, this which we've read here today, make it not just to be something that we have studied about, learned about, put away in our knowledge, but help us, Lord, to incorporate and to do Help us to be like those ones that you spoke of to Habakkuk, like him that run, that readeth. Help us to run as we've read in Jesus' name. Amen. Tom, today you quoted again from Hosea chapter 13, verse 14, where it says that God ransoms us from the power of the grave. How does God ransom from the power of the grave? Yes, and that's such a great verse where he did say, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. So the question is, how does God ransom from the power of the grave? First of all, the word ransom is the word pada, which means to sever. In other words, it means to cut or to break away. He says, I will sever them from the power. And as a matter of fact, the word power there in Hebrew is the word yad, which is the word hand. So what he's saying there is that I will sever them from the hand of the grave. And isn't that a graphic picture where the grave, you know, we we think of, of someone that we love and someone who's dying and we wrap our arms around that person and we say, no, 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 the grave will not take my loved one. Death will not take my loved one. And the grave and the death just seems to laugh at us and reach out its hand 
hand and grab that person, and there's nothing we can do. And so it's a real graphic picture here when it talks about the hand of the grave seemed to reaching up and grabbing. And God says, I will sever sever them from the hand of the grave. It brings out what Job says. He says, I I came and I broke the jaw of the lion and plucked the prey out of his mouth. So we see the picture of the lion and all of his force and all of his power walking away with this triumphant prance. And he's got the poor helpless victim impaled with the teeth of the lion there. And there's no way that that victim is going to be delivered unless a stronger one comes, as Job talked about, and breaks the jaw of the lion and plucks the prey out of his mouth. That's the picture here where God says, I will sever from thy, sever them from the hand of the grave. So how does God do this? And it says in Colossians 1, 12 through 14, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So how does God do it? How does God deliver us from the power of the grave, from the power of darkness, as it's identified here, and translate us out into the kingdom of his dear son by his blood, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin. It was by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that he ransoms them from the power of the hand of the grave, thanks to his name. This is a great verse from Hosea. It also says that God redeems us from death. So what does it mean when God ransoms us, but also redeems us from death, as spoken of in this verse? Yes, it's very important because he did say, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. And we already talked about that. And then he said, I will redeem them from death. So what's the difference between ransom and redeem? Well, we said that the word ransom here is the word pada, which means to sever. So when it says that I will ransom them from the power of the grave, which means hand, it means that he will sever. He will accomplish the release. He will set free from the hand of the grave those that he is going to do this for. So then it goes on to say, I will redeem them from death. Now that's an important word because that's that's not the word pada. That's the word ga'al, ga'al, which speaks about the redemption. That's the whole meaning from behind the book of Ruth. But it talks about the price that was paid. In other words, the ransom was what was accomplished. The redemption focuses on the price that was paid. And what was the price? that was paid for the redemption here when he says, I will redeem them from death. He said in Mark 10, 45, Jehovah Jesus speaking says, for even the son of man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom 
for many. Don't get confused by the fact that it says ransomed here. This is really talking about the real concept here of the redemption. What was the cost? What was the cost for the redemption? What was the price for the ransom that was paid here? It was his life. It was his very life. He came to lay down his life. He laid down his life. He died just like you and I die. The same way. How do we know that? Because it behooved him to be make, made like unto his brethren. He suffered unto death. We don't know exactly what was the external source that killed him. Was it the, the, the dehydration? Was it a heart attack? Was it, uh, re, was it respiratory distress? What was it? We don't know. Maybe a combination of all. But something killed him just like something will kill each one of us. And he died. He died fully as a man. Why? Because Jesus has come in the flesh. And to say that he did not not die as a man is to deny that Jesus came in the flesh, which is very serious, the spirit of Antichrist. But we know that he died in the flesh, and when he died in the flesh, he laid down his life, and he gave his life. He allowed himself to be killed by the Romans. He allowed himself to be crucified on a cross, to die the death of a crucified man. And when he was doing that, in his allowing himself to be put to death, he was giving his life a ransom for many. So when it speaks of, I will I will ransom them. That means I will sever them from the hand of the grave. I will redeem, Gaal. I will redeem them. I will pay the price, redeem them from death. In other words, the price was his blood. The ransom that he gave was his life, which he gave for many. And that's how he accomplished that. In that verse, God also said that he would be the plague of death. How is God the plague of death? That's a very important word because that word plague there is the same word that's used in the Bible in in Exodus, for example, as the pestilence. And we have to go back to Exodus 9 and to see that there in 9.15, he says, For now I will stretch out my hand that I might smite thee and thy people with pestilence. That's the word that was used there, pestilence plague. He says, I will be thy pestilence. And so what was it? This was the plague where, where it says that, that, uh, uh, that God caused it to rain a very grievous hail, such as, such as has not been in Egypt since the foundation thereof, even until now. So during that pestilence, during that particular plague, because I know we speak about the 10 plagues, but this is the word that's used for the pestilence plague, which was the great hail. It destroyed everything in Egypt. There was nothing. It just brought about a total destruction. When this grievous hail fell on the land of Egypt, the before and after pictures looked like a complete ground zero. It looked like a disaster zone because this hail destroyed everything in its sight. That was the that was the plague that brought about the absolute destruction of Egypt. And you remember that the wise men came to the Pharaoh and says, "Can't you see that we're destroyed? Let the people go already." But the the point is is that it was that plague which brought about a total destruction. That's the word that he used. He said, "I myself, I myself," God says, "will be that pestilence to you." 
O death, O death, I will be thy pestilence. And that's, and that's what he did. And the picture we have there, which is, which is a wonderful picture, it's a very graphic picture, was of the pestilence that he brought on Egypt. In that verse also, God said he would be the destruction of the grave. How is God the destruction of the grave? That's another graphic word. That's the word kotev, and it means extermination. The extermination of the grave. Oh, what a great thought that is. What a great verse that is when he says he will be the extermination of the grave. The grave is the work of Satan. And what we find in 1 John 3, 8, it says this, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now we switch from Hebrew with kotev, meaning extermination, to Greek. And this Greek word is very graphic as well, because this is the Greek word luo, when he says that the Son of God was manifested, that he might luo, destroy the works of the devil. What does the word luo mean? It means to melt like ice. It means to dissolve away. It means to disintegrate. It's the exact same idea as the word kotev in Hebrew. It's an extermination. It's a disintegration. In other words, the the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, came here and he saw the works of the devil. He saw the grave and he said to himself, I will take apart that work the work of the grave, piece by piece. I will free by disintegrating what the devil has done. I will turn that death, I will turn that grave into an entrance into heaven, which he did. And for the believer, the grave is just the veil that's passed through into heaven. Thank you for joining us today. Now, would you like to learn more about our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor? He's also a CEO, a president. He also operates ministries and foundations, as well as being the 2009 Whistleblower of the Year. So you can learn more about Tom Cantor and the Lord Jesus Christ by going to the friendshipwithgod.org website. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Also, you can go to israelrestoration.org. That's israelrestoration.org. Both websites have plenty of free helps and information about Tom Cantor and the Lord Jesus Christ. You can also sign up for Tom Cantor's daily devotional verse that can be sent to your email or directly to your phone. So go to our website, friendshipwithgod.org or israelrestoration.org or call us today at 1-800-247-3051.